When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Astros Baseball. I have a very special guest tonight, Mr. Dan Good, the author of Playing Through the Pain, Ken Caminetti, and the Steroid Confession that Changed Baseball Forever. Dan, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So Ken Caminetti, to most people, he's an Astro. Some people, he's a Padre. I mean, it's about 50-50, right? Yeah. All right, so you're a fan of baseball back in the 90s, and this is what I read about you, and and you liked Ken Caminetti. said he was a gritty player, and you appreciated how he played through everything. But then he came forward in 2002 and admitted that he used steroids, and you went from fan to journalist. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, you know, I grew up in the 1990s and I loved baseball back then. I really appreciated it. There was just so much happening during that decade. And I felt like Ken was a standout player, especially in the mid 90s, you know, kind of near the end of his Astros tenure. And then his time with the Padres, you know, he was one of the better third basemen in baseball. And he always stood out to me, you know, just the way he he looked, the, the scowl he had. Um, the way his uniform was always dirty. He played the game, you know, with a football player mentality. And I always, I always respected that. And, you know, I was, I graduated from high school in 2002 and, you know, really figured out that I wanted to be a journalist near the end of my high school days and into my college days. Uh, so, you know, I was really moved when he came forward, you know, this was a huge moment for sports journalism, uh, him talking about steroid use um, admitting to it, you know, this really put a face to it and said, okay, here's somebody who's willing to talk about it. You know, you can't make like it's not happening anymore because here's the MVP of the National League saying he did these things. So you couldn't ignore it and sh- or shy away from it anymore. Um, you know, and as I, um, you know, continued my my college career, uh, studied journalism, started practicing journalism in the field myself, you know, those kind of things stood out to me. And I remember I was 2004, I was interning at the George Michael Sports Machine. That was really a big moment for me. And that's when Ken passed away in 2004. And it just moved me. His death moved me in a really meaningful way. And, you know, normally when celebrities die, you're like, yeah, that's, that's sad, you know, but he really, his death really moved me. And I just always... Kind of found myself coming back to his story as a fan and as a journalist. I felt like there was more there, 
you know, and I, I was intrigued to find out more about him. And um, as my career kind of advanced and I became more uh, skilled as a journalist um, and I found myself working overnights with nothing to do during the day, I just said, you know, I think I'm going to research Ken Caminiti and see if there's a book there. And uh, that kind of led me on the journey that uh, I've been on over the past decade. Yeah, I read that you interviewed 400 people. How long does something like that take? What's well, a long time? <laughs> I did my 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 first interviews in 2013. Uh, I started with people on the fringes of Ken's story. So I actually my first interviews with his motorcycle guy, the guy who made motorcycles for him. And, you know, I started just calling people and emailing people and, and reaching out to people. I didn't really go after the big names at first because, you know, if this didn't work out, I didn't want to be embarrassed or waste their time. Um, but eventually I just said, you know what, I'm going to start, you know, reaching out to Art Howe and reaching out to Casey Kendall and reaching out to, you know, some of these people from from Ken's baseball past. And, um, you know, I, I think over the course of three or four years, I did most of the interviews. Um, I did some of the final interviews like Bruce Bochy in 2020. Uh, so this was from 2013 to 2020. I was pretty consistently interviewing people. So he ended up dying of a drug overdose. And he also admitted to doing steroids. And even in your title, play, playing through the pain, was the steroid use to recover from the injuries? And did that, I mean, how, I, mean I, I read that he started doing like marijuana and drinking alcohol in middle school. So did he like always have this drug problem and it just kept going his whole life? Substances were always around him. You know, even his middle school and high school friends, his circle of friends would, a lot of them would drink and use drugs. And this was just floating around uh, when they were growing up in San Jose. This was no big thing to him. Um, and, and people in his circle of friends eventually would start using steroids, uh, including a really close friend of his in high school who ended up supplying him with steroids when he was a major league player. So this stuff was always around them, you know, and, and as he was um, struggling with substance abuse in his personal life uh, in the 80s and into the 90s, again, there wasn't that stigma for him of using, especially with steroids. You know, when you're using amphetamines to stay on the field and you're using painkillers to stay on the field, I, I think that you look at steroids as that next thing. Um, you know, for him, it became, uh, there was a couple reasons why he ended up using, uh, but really, you know, he found himself um, not as capable of getting through a season as he, as he was before. He liked the way he looked on steroids. But really, the steroids use picked up in 1996 after he tore his rotator cuff. Uh, he tore his rotator cuff early in the season and was facing the possibility of not playing for the rest of the year. You know, he was he was considering walking away from baseball, taking some time off, uh, getting surgery. He didn't want to be a burden to his teammates. You know, and those around him were worried about that because here's somebody who struggled with substance abuse walking away from baseball or taking time off or missing the season, I mean, those could have been devastating, you know? So using steroids to stay on the field in comparison um, looks pretty tame. And, you know, one of the things that that really stands out is, is Ken, when he was um, interviewed for Sports Illustrated, 
talked about this idea that he went to Mexico by himself, that he was doing all these things, that he was taking too much of it and didn't know what he was taking, uh, which came into play a little bit later. But in his 1995, 1996, early use of steroids, um, especially when he was winning the MVP award, you know, he was using this under the guidance of his friend. And, you know, I, I think that's an important thing. You know, he was using these drugs the proper way, cycling on and off and, and, you know, not using drugs and drinking in his personal life. And because of that balance he had in his personal life, the steroid use really did help him in a positive way. It kept him on the field, kept him healthy, put up wonderful numbers. Um, you know, it was really when 1997 comes around, he starts using again. Uh, he starts drinking and eventually drugs enter the, the play, enter the enter his life again. And those mix, that mix of all these problems just continued to proliferate. Uh, but when he was clean uh, and he was using steroids, he was really doing it the right way and, and, you know, properly cycling on and off. And that's when you saw the best parts of his career. So most people think of steroids that the, you know, the player would take it to get an unfair advantage, you know, to get big and bulky like Barry Bonds and hit 80 home runs. But Ken was doing it more just to stay on the field because he was dealing with so many injuries, right? He was he was trying to stay in the field. He wanted to help his team win. He wanted to be a good teammate. You think of it this way. If you're a good teammate, you're playing through anything. You're doing whatever you can to stay in the field. Um, and then this warped, twisted view ends being a great teammate by using steroids. Even you can look at it now and say, you know, oh, this is blurring the lines of competitive balance. Um, he was also in a very specific, narrow viewpoint, being a really good teammate by trying to play his best. Um, but I think there were so many factors, you know, even, even contracts, you know, he was up for a new contract at the end of the 95 season. He felt like he wasn't getting as much money as he probably should have kind of took a hometown discount to stay with the Padres. You know, there, there's that, that idea that, um, you know, that disrespect just across the league, you know, he should have won gold glove awards earlier in his career and wasn't winning them, you know, and then he finally starts winning when he hits home runs. Um, you know, I, I think that his career was a, a model of um, a delayed gratification that, you know, he was deserving of being a gold glove winner and an all-star earlier than he received them. And there was this bitterness in a way that, you know, he was being overlooked year after year and he starts hitting home runs and everybody's noticing him now, even though Astros fans in the years ahead of that were, were paying attention and recognized his talent. So uh, th there were so many reasons for him to use uh, and, and not all of them were bad. He wasn't trying to uh, break all the records, you know, and I think a lot of players who ended up using, you know, these are guys who were trying to make the team, trying to get the contract, trying to have one more good year, uh, overcome injuries, come back from that Tommy John surgery, uh, you know, see if they can make it back up to the major leagues after bouncing back and forth between the minors. It's it's very complicated because you see Bonds, Clemens, McGuire, Sosa, A-Rod getting all the headlines, but there were so many other players who were using it just in the background that we don't know about, we have no idea about, and um, you were really just trying to get over that hump or stay in the major leagues or secure a job. So he ended up going to college at San Jose State, drafted by the Astros in the round three in 1984. Was he in any kind of 
you know, doing any kind of drugs back then, uh, substance abuse and steroids or anything? He was running hard. I will say that he was running hard at San Jose State and in college, he was running hard in the minor leagues. There was some recreational drug use um, and there was a lot of drinking. And on one level, I think you look at it as a part of that baseball culture of, you know, you go over four, you go and drink, you go four for four, you go and drink. That that drinking is ingrained in this culture um, and, and drug use was kind of just that next level for that. Um, so I think on one hand, it was appreciated and respected. Oh, this guy can really drink. And then on the other flip side of that, it's like, oh, this guy can really drink. Like this is this is kind of a big deal, especially as his pro career continued. And as he finally made it to the major leagues, you know, he's showing up late for spring training twice in the same uh, spring training in 1988. You know, there was these red flags. And then he got arrested for driving under the influence in 1989. So there are these red flags popping up uh, that I think the Astros started to recognize. And some of his teammates started to recognize. Even some of his minor league teammates told me, you know, hey, you know, his his partying was a little bit much. Like, you know, he could handle it. He could drink as, as much as anybody. But you kind of notice these things picking up. And especially when he wasn't slowing down you know, into his mid to late 20s, I think that's when people really start to notice that there was a problem here. And this wasn't just part of the baseball culture. I had read somewhere that Biggio and Bagwell, while he was with the Astros, they really tried to help him out with all of his issues. They did. I, I think they both tried really hard. Um, there were a lot of teammates in the early 90s Astros teams that really tried to help Ken. They kind of had a system of who would go and confront them today? You know, hey, it seems like he's running a little ragged. Let's go check in on him. You know, who's going to who's going to confront them? Because he would he would be ornery and difficult and he would, um, you know, uh, get angry at times at the people who would confront them. So you had to kind of pick your spots. Uh, but Craig and Jeff, uh, to their benefit, really tried hard. They They really cared and they showed that they cared in so many ways. And, you know, I think. It's easy to overlook that when you look at the outcomes and results, but those guys tried really hard and, uh, and really cared for him and, um, you know, really went to bat trying to, trying to help him, trying to keep him on the right track and, um, you know, and just trying to keep him on, on the right path. So when he debuted in uh, major league baseball, he had a pretty awesome first game, two for three with a home run and a double. He scored the winning run. And I believe he played, I don't know, about 50 out of the next 70 games. The guy's on top of the world. And then the next year he's in double A, he's going back and forth. Did he have any issues? Was he having any personal demons during that year when he was kind of struggling? I think when when he came up, you know, he made the jump from double A to the majors. He should have been in triple A. For the early part of the 1987 season in double-A, he was batting 359, 360. You know, he should have been called up. Um, and he was better than Chuck Jackson. I feel like the Astros had this battle going back and forth between Ken and Chuck Jackson at third base. Um, and and Hallinair was very uh, difficult and ornery and frustrating and critical for rookies. Uh, so he kind of chewed up rookies and spit them out. And, you know, Chuck Jackson got called up. He didn't, he didn't do so well. And then Ken got called up and yeah, Ken had an awesome start to his career. 
Uh, he actually, in the All-Star game, before he got called up, days before he got called up, he hits a home run against Tom Glavin. Then he gets called up. He has a great game on defense in his debut. The home run, the triple, game-winning run. He gets another home run that week. Uh, he's just on fire. He wins the Player of the Week award for the National League in his first week in the major leagues. You know, oh, my gosh, this is great. The problem was he had a lot of holes in the swing, and pitchers easily and quickly exploited those holes. So uh, he took some adjustments, took some time to um, come around on that. His average tanked uh, over the course of the season, but he was the guy. His That third base spot was his, and he was showing up late the spring training and not really taking things as seriously as the Astros wanted him to. So he got demoted to start the year, and that's where he really played with Craig for the first time, you know, they're, they're both in Tucson uh, with these major league dreams and Craig's obviously getting ready for this hall of fame career. And here's his third baseman, Ken uh, who's a great player in his own right. So it was interesting for him to kind of uh, pay his dues that way and, uh, and be humbled a little bit, you know, and kind of matriculate at the right time. You know, he wasn't pulled up this time. Now he was kind of, you know, earning his keep uh, with players around him and, you know, I think that really fueled him, you know, that that emotion and the struggles that he had really fueled him because after that season, that 88 loss season, he decided to go play in Puerto Rico for Winter Bowl and really established himself as a middle of the lineup player and a leader in that on that team. So when he came back in 1989, the Astros still didn't really know what to do with him and kind of wanted to dump him. He was being floated in trade offers with uh, Wade Boggs. The Red Sox weren't interested in him. Uh, the Braves had looked at him, but they couldn't work out a deal. So he comes to spring training, and Art Howe's the manager now. And Art Howe goes up to him and says, you're my guy. And and Ken loved that. Ken loved playing for Art. He really appreciated that that player mentality that, that Art brought to the clubhouse. And being secure and confident in his role helped Ken to uh, succeed and to thrive in a new way. And that's really when he established himself as a major league player. But, you know, he was going through some tough times in 88. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Yeah, I had read in 88 that they didn't call him up to play third. I guess there was someone that got injured playing third and they ended up trading for Buddy Bell and yep. some more injuries. Move Buddy Bill to first, and then he got called up. Mm -hmm. It seemed it, it's kind of weird. Like as a fan, at least for me, I I really don't know a lot about Ken Caminetti except what you see on TV, and I knew about the steroid thing, but I didn't know he had all these issues and showing up late for spring training. I mean, that's something that fans don't know. They would know it now if it was happening now. You would know, but. You know, in the early 90s, you wouldn't know all this stuff was going on. That's what really stood out to me. You know, he kind of was really struggling with substance abuse. You know, as we turned to the 90s, he was really, really struggling. And yet he was still showing up every day and doing an adequate job and playing good third base. 
And the Astros didn't really know what to do with him. You know, in 93, Art Howe and members of the front office staff had talked to Ken at different points. And, and Art Howe even floated the possibility of him going to re rehab. And the Astros can say that he had a hamstring pull or some other problem that, you know, we understand that you have concerns and issues and, and you really need help. We don't want to make this a big deal. Like, we want you just to go get the help. We can make like there's an injury that you're dealing with and and handle it that way. Um, it was it was pretty hush hush. Like, I think players within the clubhouse knew what was happening and knew kind of had problems. But for the for the fans, like you didn't have any idea. I think there's a lot more visibility and a lot more conversation around those things today. Um, back then, it was if you're showing up, you're ready to go. You're going to be in the lineup and play. And thankfully, we've gotten away from that mentality a little bit uh, over the years. But, you know, back then he was playing through everything. And, you know, that speaks to a little bit of the, the you know, playing through the pain. Like he would play through anything. And, you know, I think a lot of times his managers and his teams had to pull him back and say, you're taking a day off because, you know, he was going to go no matter what. So talk about the end of his Astros era before he uh, went to San Diego. How did it all end with the Astros? He went to rehab after the 1993 season. And 1994 was an amazing year for him. You know, he made the all-star team for the first time. He should have won the gold glove. Uh, he should have won it in 89. He should have won it in 94. He was far and away the best defensive third baseman in the league that year. Uh, but he did win. He did make it to the All Star Game. He was one of five Astros at the All Star Game, and and his power numbers were up. You know, he was not using steroids then. He was he was completely clean. He was sober and he was uh, secure. And he was playing better baseball than he had in a long time. Uh, the problem with the Astros: two things. One was the strike uh, in August of 1994. And two was money. You know, the Astros wanted to shed salary and Ken had the highest contract, highest salary of any regular player on the team that year uh, or right up there. And they really wanted to dump his salary. Uh, after the strike happened, they looked to shed shed money, payroll. Uh, they end up having conversations with the Padres. Padres end up picking up Steve Finley and Ken in one trade. You know, this 12-player trade, this huge deal that actually – uh, was was secured in November of 94, but was held for like a month because of the fact that the Padres ownership group was changing and they wanted the new owners to be able to approve the deal. So the deal was actually like made and finalized, but then it wasn't announced for about a month as they got this new ownership group in place. Um, and that's what happened, you know, and it's, it's really a shame because, you know, Ken... Uh, had been in the minor leagues in 1986 when the Astros made the playoffs and had this amazing team and this amazing season, you know, and he plays through those doldrums and those tough times in the late eighties and early nineties, when they're turning over the roster, getting rid of veteran players like Nolan Ryan, Billy Doran, Kevin Bass, all those guys are heading out of town, you know, and now Ken and Craig and Jeff are left with all these other young players who eventually became superstars at other places like Kenny Lofton, Kurt Schilling, uh, Finley, um, on and on and on, you know, and, and they had this, this power lineup that eventually would become great, but, uh, they were still kind of learning their way. Um, you know, so they were kind of seeing it through those tough times 
you know, and then you look at the wildcard era era and wildcard came in 94, but the season was canceled. Um, you know, this would have been a prime wildcard team, um, you know, in those mid nineties years. Um, but by the time that Ken and everybody, Ken was playing his best baseball and the Astros were finally coming around and then they decide to start blowing up that team. And it was just really frustrating because, you know, he'd put in all his time with these, these lost seasons. Um, so it was really disappointing. It felt like, you know, there was a missed opportunity to put a punctuation mark on his Astros days, you know, play in the playoffs, which they probably would have done at the end of the 94 season. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, unmet expectations, you know, in part because of Ken's struggles in part because of the Astros struggles, you know, and I feel like there was because of that, people look so strongly on his Padres years he only played four years with the Padres. He played like nine years with the Astros. So there's a disconnect there. But I, at the same time, you know, he had the World Series appearance with the Padres, the MVP award, uh, more all-star games, gold gloves, all those things happened for the Padres. Uh, but at the same time, this guy was more or less the same player for the Astros through a lot of his Astros years. And I think there was just a missed opportunity to, to smell the flowers when he was with Houston. So when they make the trade to send him to San Diego, does the uh, Padres ownership know about all of his demons? Hey, not really. You know, I don't think they did. Um, and, and by that point, he was clean. He was really, you know, taking the right steps and he was following the right processes. Um, he was he was emotionally secure. He was in a really good place. He was an awesome teammate. His first couple of years with San Diego, he was an awesome teammate. I think he was the teammate with the Padres that the Astros always knew he could be. Uh, you know, he was a guy who wasn't quite dependable with the Astros at times. And now he goes to San Diego and he's the guy. He's the clubhouse enforcer. He's the middle of the lineup bat that you're always waiting for. You know, he's playing great third base. Um, he was the player that the Astros always wanted him to be. So it was the fulfillment of a lot of expectations with the Astros um, but the, the Padres didn't know what they were getting. You know, they looked at him as, you know, the 93 to 94 Ken Kennedy and not looking at the, what he would become. I mean, there was, there was definitely a step up in his, in his, uh, ability and his power potential based on, uh, decisions that he was making. Looking at videos of him. I mean, the guy was built and I mean, he did wear super tight pants and you could see all of his muscles. And the play that sticks out to me is when he throws the ball sitting on his butt in foul territory and throws the guy out at first. I mean, by looking at it, this guy looks like a linebacker, not some guy that's going to be making these amazing plays in the infield in baseball. But he had a great career with uh, the Padres, you know, with the awards and the World Series. And that's why at the beginning – for Astro fans, we like remember him playing with the Astros for so long and they ended with the Padres, but he had a successful uh, tenure with the Padres. So you said he was clean, but he what 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 happened? The downturn, what happened? I mean, I know he didn't end up clean. No, there was, you know, he really struggled. He really tried. He really tried to stay clean. Um, for him, a big backslide moment happened at the ESPY Awards for that play, that very play that you talked about. He won the ESPY Award and he got invited to New York City for the ESPY Awards in February of 1997. 
And it was too much for him to handle. You know, this was difficult for him to be the guy with all the attention on him, the center of everything. And uh, and that was that was a really tough moment. You know, I think that he struggled there. Uh, he backslid on his drinking, but kind of, you know, kept it under wraps for a while. But by 1997, he had started drinking around the team again. You know, he would drink on the team bus or the plane. And who's going to say anything to him? He's the reigning National League MVP, and he's the scariest guy in the clubhouse. <laughs> you don't want to mess with him. Um, so I think there was an element of that. You know, it was, there was an element of people surrounding him that might not always have his best interest in mind. Uh, people wanted something from him. Now he's a star. You know, now his name means something to the greater, bigger world. And Everybody wants a piece of that. And that became a lot. You know, I think it was tough for him because he was so trusting. It was tough for him to say no. And there's so much power in saying no. He struggled to say no. And he let a lot of people in that weren't necessarily good for him. And that that continued, that pattern continued uh, near the end of his Padres years and into the, his return to Houston in 1999 and 2000, which was you know, shades of glory, but also uh, disappointment and letdown that he wasn't um, the player or person that people hoped he would be at that point. So it's kind of, it's kind of not, not weird. That's a bad choice of words, but almost sad, I guess, that he has all these struggles and all these issues with drugs and gets traded. Probably he, more than likely he didn't want to get traded. He wanted to be successful there but he finally like gets to the top of the mountain and just being probably the person that he was always trying to be actually turned out to be his downfall and that's just kind of crazy to think about that it is and it's difficult to think about you know he was he was such a great guy and he had such a warm heart you know I, there were so many stories that I learned from talking to people who connected with him with little exchanges um you know, the uh, 65 Roses uh, Foundation uh, would invite kids with cystic fibrosis to the ballpark, to um, to the Astrodome, to uh, to meet the players. You know, and one of those um, one of those kids uh, had talked to me for the book. He has since passed away, and he was telling me about how nervous he was to meet these players. These are his cardboard heroes. These are the players he's watching on TV every day. You know, and Ken went out of his way to to help him not feel nervous, to make him feel comfortable in that setting. He was he was really focused on that. You know, he's really focused on making other people feel good about themselves. And there was another situation in San Diego and the Padres had a charity fundraising event for a fan of theirs who had passed away from cancer and uh, somebody with the Padres uh, front office marketing group had approached him about, you know, maybe doing something for this fundraiser. And he kind of looked at her blankly and, you know, she was wondering if this was the right thing for him. Maybe he wasn't interested. And she had come back into the clubhouse the next day and he, he ran up to her and said, I'd really like to donate my motorcycle. You know, I really was thinking about this and wanted to donate it. I think people uh, who crossed paths with Ken sometimes didn't understand his intentions or his emotions. Uh, but when you get to the heart of the man, there was there was so much warmth there and so much love. And uh, I think that gets overshadowed sometimes because you look at how hulking and how scary looking he was with that scowl. Uh, but he was he was really a good guy. And I think that speaks to the fact that 
people wanted to give him another chance. People wanted to help him even when he was struggling because they knew what a good guy he was. So after his playing career, he actually got a, a job coaching with the Padres, but eventually he gets into some legal trouble, right? And then that's when he ends up overdosing. Yeah, his his legal trouble really picked up right at the end of his career. You know, he was left off the roster, the playoff roster for the NLCS for the Braves. And weeks later, he got arrested in the Houston hotel room uh, with drugs. And that really set him off. This was a three-year period where he was being drug tested every month for three years. You know, that's a really big thing. And I, I think that the way we approach um, drug charges today are a little bit different. They've softened quite a bit. Uh, but Harris County in Texas was really tough on drugs and he got stuck in the system and he couldn't break free from that. And, you know, it was difficult again for him to um, break free from people who might be bringing him down, negative influences in his life. You know, the Padres really tried. They invited him to uh, the closing of Qualcomm in, in 2003 and then in 2004, they wanted him to come back and be a coach in spring training. And he he wasn't ready. You know, he still felt like he could play, even though he was past those days. And, you know, you talk to a lot of players and they, they have that difficulty kind of turning the page on their career. And Ken definitely did. The competitive fire was still burning inside of him. And on top of that, he was still surrounding with the wrong people. And, you know, it just it wasn't a good fit at that time. And it was really sad because. So many people in baseball really cared about him and wanted to see him healthy, healthy and happy and successful. And they wanted to see that redemption for him. And uh, he just never could break free from it. All right, guys, the book is Playing Through Pain, the Ken Caminetti and the Steroid Confession that Changed Baseball Forever. I want to congratulate you. I read that you are a finalist for the Casey Award, and that is an award for the best baseball book. So Congratulations on that. And and what do you mean in the in the title that the the confession changed baseball forever? No, thank you for saying that. Uh for me, the confession that changed baseball forever was actually a riff off of Sports Illustrated's headline that they used in 2017 about this. But I do think it changed baseball forever because it forced baseball to have to clean up its act. It forced baseball to have to agree to uh, drug testing program because at that point when Ken was coming forward and talking to Sports Illustrated, Jose Canseco was also coming forward and saying that 85% of players were using, which was a number that I think I even have trouble believing at this point. Um, it was kind of outlandish, and Jose Canseco was trying to he had an axe to grind, and he was he wanted to sell a book. You know, Ken was just coming forward because he wanted to move forward with his life and clear his name. So when Ken came forward, it really meant something. And it forced baseball to have to do something about this problem. It couldn't shy away from it anymore. So when drug testing was implemented, even on a preliminary basis in 2003, um, you know, baseball players, if they chose not to use, could have put an end to this, but they kept using steroids. They kept using performance enhancing drugs trigger the continued testing protocols because they tested above, I think it was 5%. Uh, they tested above a percentage threshold and it, it required the testing to continue. And, and because of that, because of the testing system, because of Washington bearing down, baseball was finally forced to confront this and clean it up. I'm not saying it's clean now, but it's obviously better than it was. 
and uh, and Ken had a, a a role with that. This is a uh, separate from Kim Ken Caminetti, but you have a connection with Chaz McCormick. We went to the same college. He, we both went to Millersville. Uh, he graduated about a decade after I did. Um, but we both went to Millersville in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, I see. I saw like there's a little clip about you and then he's on the cover. So he's the superstar. Yes. I, was, I was so happy. I got uh, honored in the alumni magazine in December and I opened it up and I was on page 31. I was really happy. <laughs> and I looked at the cover and it's Chaz McCormick. I was like, well, he had, he had a better year than I did. So yeah. congrats there. <laughs> well, is there anything else you want to add about the book? Maybe why people should uh, check it out or just anything you want to add about Ken Caminetti? Uh, I just, I think he's, he's always fascinating. I, I still continue to be fascinated by him. I still continue to appreciate him. Um, I think with a lot of books and projects you work on, uh, after a while you say, I'm tired of this person. I never got tired of Ken. I never got tired of even through his struggles. I just, I find that he was an interesting, meaningful person. He had a big heart. And, uh, you know, I think it's worthwhile looking back at those Astros days when the team wasn't good, you know, because it's easy to look at today and say, great, you know, they're the world champions. This is awesome. You know, there were so many years when they struggled. And I think that Ken embodies uh, a lot of those lost years. Uh, but it's meaningful to look back at those days and and appreciate and celebrate uh, what was in Houston before this last, you know, decade or so and, and appreciate some of the great players that this team had. All right, Dan, how can everybody find you on Twitter? I am at dgood 73 is that when you were born? What's the seven three? No, it was my football number in high school. Oh, D good seven three. All right. That's where you can find them. Anyway, Dan, I really appreciate you coming on and the book sounds great. And I hope everybody out there enjoyed hearing a little bit about uh former Astro star, Ken Caminetti. Good luck with the book. Appreciate you coming on and everyone listening. Thanks for tuning in. And we will see you next time on Astros baseball. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.